But this growth has a funny consequence in the realm of regulation. As general purpose computers and the general purpose network pervade more of our lives, a lot of devices that used to be terribly specialized and esoteric are now just computers running a software package. So for example, radios. Um, until recently, radios were analog, and they took their transmitting and receiving characteristics from vibrating crystals in their interior. Now, thanks to software-defined radio, we're increasingly seeing radios that change their characteristics with software. These still have some parameters determined in hardware, but a software-defined radio can and does act as a, uh, a Wi-Fi radio at one moment, and then a 3G phone at another, and then another kind of Wi-Fi radio at the next, and possibly a TV tuner or an FM radio tuner, all depending on what code you're loading into the same hardware package. Um, it, has, uh, it has to have a fast analog to digital converter and it has to have the right antenna. Um, but these are also general purpose devices and they're also getting cheaper and smaller and faster with every passing day. So we're not radio engineers by and large and, and this seems like a pretty esoteric thing. So why does this matter to the wider question of regulation? It matters because the model for regulating radio use is to assign specific applications to specific frequencies. Uh, a taxi company might get a certain band for its dispatch. A 3G company might get another band for its own communications. And then we insist that radio makers confine their devices' capabilities to operating in those assigned bands. Your baby monitor should be physically impossible or physically incapable of deliberately transmitting in the frequencies used to keep planes from falling out of the sky. Uh, so that works in a universe of crystals and hardwired, circus, hardwired circuits, but there's no parallel in the world of computers. A general purpose computer that can only run certain computers, certain programs, is a contradiction in terms, which is not to say that people won't try. Which brings us to the copyright wars. Since the earliest days of packaged software, companies have been trying to figure out how to make certain kinds of data uncopyable. You might remember uh, in the early days when programs required you to enter a certain word from a certain page in the manual before they would run, or when you had to have a bulky physical dongle pl uh, physically present plugged into your computer before you could run the program that was associated with it. Today, of course, we have DVDs that theoretically don't allow you to copy them into your computer, or streaming video that you're theoretically not supposed to be able to save to your hard drive, but none of this stuff actually works. Um, the BBC iPlayer has DRM that's, uh, that tries to stop you from saving a video for more than 30 days. It's true that most people can't defeat this measure, but that doesn't stop people from, from getting a copy that they can save. Uh, here's how they do it. They either type Doctor Who BitTorrent into Google and find a copy, or they find a copy that someone has ripped over the air, because of course at the same moment that the BBC is taking a Doctor Who episode, for example, and sticking it out on iPlayer with some countermeasure that's supposed to stop you from copying it, they're also transmitting it in the clear, in digital form, everywhere in the country, and they've got specialized helicopters and other devices that actually survey bits of Britain looking for places where the digital signal doesn't reach, and they add new infrastructure to make sure that the signal that can, can reach into there too, such that everywhere you go, you're nominally able, in exchange for your license fee, to grab a copy off the air in, in pristine digital form, the same file that's being transmitted over, over iTunes, or over iPlayer, but, uh, but without any of the DRM and, and restrictions. And then if, if, if you don't get one of the ones that have been recorded off the air and then put on the internet, um, you can find uh, ones that have been cracked uh, out of the DRM because you might not know how to crack the iPlayer DRM. And of course you could Google, how do I crack iPlayer DRM? And you'd get some kind of esoteric recipe for doing it. But even simpler than that, 
is finding the copy that someone less lazy or technically challenged than you has actually gone to the trouble of removing the DRM from and putting it online. Or you, f you find one that's been ripped from a DVD. And as with DVDs, even the most technically unsophisticated can figure out how to rip them on their machines eventually. Uh, you know, you type handbrake into Google and there you go. You can rip your DVDs all you want. Um, and it's not just uh, general purpose computers where you have people trying to control the way that data moves and what programs they can execute, but you have general purpose networks under attack as well where there are regulatory measures that are trying to control which kinds of bits can go over the network. Um, so ISPs have been told all over the world that they should act as copyright cops and censor certain bad sites or as terrorism cops and cer censor certain bad sites. So either they have to somehow figure out which sites are bad and sign up to a blacklist that stops those sites from being loaded by their customers. Or in some cases, they're being asked to have some kind of native intelligence that figures out when a bit is bad and if it's the wrong kind of bit to interdict it on its way to the endpoint. Um, uh, and of course, anyone who wants to be a pirate or a child pornographer or anyone else who wants to access bad stuff can get around these sensor blocks. The, there's a private contractor that supplies the sensorware that's supposed to stop child porn in um, Australia. And this was a very uh, uh, controversial measure when they, when they mandated uh, anti-child porn software in Australia. And the government kept going around saying, well, we're going to this expense and we're adding this layer of control to our network because we don't want pedophiles to look at child porn. And the contractor who was supplying the software in a rare moment of candor said, that's not what this software does. Um, anyone who wants to look at child porn can trivially defeat it. This is to stop you from accidentally seeing it. Uh, which, is a much, which is a very different measure and certainly not the way that it was sold to the state and, and doesn't take account of some of the special risks of having lists of websites that you're not allowed to look at. Um, those risks came to the fore when the Pirate Bay published the, uh, the censorware lists for the child porn filters in um, Denmark and Sweden and it emerged that 98.5% of the material that had been added to the secret list of websites that no one was allowed to see were not child porn. They were merely objectionable or, 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 or horrible or just something that someone wanted to get rid of. And the most expeditious way of doing that, rather than arguing about the legality of the material, was to just class it as child porn. And since the child porn lists are by their nature secret, no government in the world could get away with publishing a list of, these are all the sites that have child porn on them, so don't go and look at them. Um, <laughs> It, be, it's, it becomes a, a very convenient place to do some, some very tricky things. Um, and of course, this business of being able to get around the, the, the sensor blocks, of being able to use a proxy and so on, that's built into the nature of a general purpose network. General purpose networks, by their character, allow you, for example, to tunnel one protocol inside another or use a proxy to hop around a, a, a bad router. Um, and it's not just uh, the, the carriage of, of material that's being uh, interdicted or that, someone, that there are regulatory attempts to interdict. It's also the hosting of material. So I, I alluded earlier in my examples of um, uh, regulation of general purpose networks and computers to the Viacom YouTube suit. So at the, at the last time I got a statistic for YouTube's uh, volume, uh, I spoke about a year ago at a Google office in Zurich, and they told me at the time that there were 29 hours of video being uploaded to YouTube every minute. Uh, today, it's, it's clearly a much larger number. I mean, it's just, it's, we call it big num. But, but clearly, it's, it's more hours than there are, say, copyright hours in the universe, right? I mean, if you, copyright lawyer hours in the universe. Like, if you assigned solicitors specialized in, copy, in copyright to examine all the video being, you know, sort of shoveled up into YouTube, um, you wouldn't have enough lawyers. There just, just aren't enough, and, and there probably won't be. I mean, you'd, you'd essentially have to turn 
you know, a sizable fraction of the world's population into, into copyright experts and then assign them to nothing but reviewing YouTube. And it's not just YouTube. Viacom has asked that YouTube uh, um, assure rights holders that none of the material that goes online infringes their copyright. The principle that they want to establish in law is that this, this kind of intermediary, someone who hosts user-created material, should have, should, should have to take some best effort to ensure that that material doesn't infringe copyright. And the range of people who host user-created material is obviously much larger than YouTube. Um, if there aren't enough copyright lawyer hours remaining between now and the heat death of the universe to review YouTube, when you chuck in every tweet, when you chuck in every blog post and every comment and so on, you certainly run out of copyright lawyer hours very quickly. And, and you, know, you start to imagine kind of expert systems running one to a hydrogen atom to kind of review all this material before you, before you could have some, some good crack at it. Um, and so nevertheless, you've got this, this uh, billion dollar lawsuit uh, that YouTube, uh, Viacom is hoping to appeal to a high court in the United States uh, that would try to establish that principle in law and asking that, that general purpose networks become specialized in some way. Um, so tellingly, people worried about radio and copyright came to the same place in their regulatory quest. Uh, designing computers from the ground up that have the built-in facility to run programs that their users can't control or inspect and that are designed to work even when users don't want them to. So, for example, uh, when software-defined radio started to enter the stream of commerce, the American radio regulator, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, had a request for comment on a proposal to mandate that every device that could be a software-defined radio should have to run a trusted computing environment that would limit which programs could run on it. And this sounds on its face like a pretty straightforward regulatory initiative, right? We, we have these general purpose, special purpose devices we call radios. It's, the, it's that chip in your phone. It's that card in your, in your laptop. But the problem is that a software-defined radio is just an analog to digital computer uh, converter and a general purpose computer. Uh, and an antenna, and that's you know a computer with a video card in it because there's your there's your ADC and DAC. That's a that's that's every PC extant and every PC that will be built. That this this what seemingly small piece of regulation lets require people who make radios uh, build in something that controls which programs they can run uh, would in effect reach to cover every active general purpose computing on the planet. Um, so there's another problem with this, of course, which is that it not only won't, it not only reaches beyond the scope of, of this narrow radio regulation world, um, it would also have no effect on bad guys who want to do bad things, who want to disrupt air traffic control signals or interfere with um, uh, emergency first responder networks or any of the other things that we legitimately worry about. I, I, I log a lot of air miles every year because my family's in Canada. You can hear I don't have a, a local accent. Uh, and... Um, I'm just as interested in the, as the next person and probably more interested than most in ensuring that planes don't fall out of the sky because I spent a lot of time on them. Um, and so when we start talking about regulation to ensure that radios don't interfere with air traffic control, one of the things that I'd like to see it do is ensure that radios don't interfere with air traffic control, not merely have an, an exercise so that we can, when the radios do interfere with, with air traffic control, we can say, well, we did our best. Um, likewise... Entertainment companies now demand that mobile phone companies, game console companies, and operating system companies design their systems to lock out the user when movies or music or games are running and to prevent, uh, capture, uh, and to prevent users from capturing products back to the hard drive in a form that can be freely uh, copied and used. So I talked earlier about streaming. 
Um, streaming is a useful abstract idea when we want to talk about a certain kind of downloading, but in some meaningful ex- sense, there's no such thing as a stream in the way that the entertain- entertainment industry means it when they talk about streams. You, you sometimes will hear uh, a commercial offer being put forward. You know, when, for example, when there's an inquiry into um, the future of digital, Britain's digital economy, people from the entertainment industry will come forward and they'll say, well, perhaps someone will want to pay for a stream or, le- or more for a download. And in that sense, there is no difference, right? Because what you're doing is you're sending someone the stream of bits and they are downloading it. And when you say, well, I've sent you a stream and not a download, what you mean is, I hope that the software you're using to receive these bits doesn't save them. Um, But the software could save them. Uh, This is the iPlayer lesson. The software, of course, could save them. And, And if it does, there's no functional difference between a stream and a download. There is no way to show someone an image over the internet without giving them a copy of it. There's no way to play a song for someone over the internet without giving them a copy of it. Um, the internet is not a cunning arrangement of mirrors and pipes. It's, it's, a mess, mess, it's a system for sending bits around, and so of course those bits have to arrive on the other person's side. And so the solution that's been approached is when you're receiving a stream, we should have something that runs that ensures that you're not running the wrong programs while the stream is in in action. Just like when you're doing radio stuff, there should be a program that ensures that you're not doing the wrong kind of radio stuff. And on the one hand, this has been wholly ineffective. And on the other hand, it creates this computing environment where you have uh, uh, lots of incentives to run, uh, to design operating systems and hardware so they can run programs that are antithetical to the user's interests and that users can't control or see or interfere with or even in some cases know about. And the entertainment industry has found lots of willing partners in this. For example, game, games console companies want to charge monopoly rent to game studios for the privilege of running on their hardware. So they sell you some hardware, a, a, a console that lives under your telly, an Xbox, or what have you. And sometimes they sell it at a discount, or sometimes they sell it at less than the margin that they think they might be able to command for it otherwise. And then they go around to games publishers and they say, we have a network of installed devices out there in the world. If you want your code to run on them, you'll have to pay us, and we will give you the keys necessary to run the code. And otherwise, code won't run on them. Um, Mobile companies want to keep your phone locked to their network, requiring you to throw out your handset when you change carriers. In the UK, uh, it's broadly legal to unlock mobile phones, although sometimes it's technically challenging, especially if if you have a new model. In many places around the world, it's not legal to unlock the phone, uh, to, to unlock your phones, and it's technically much more challenging uh, and requires a, a much higher bar of, um, of technical expertise or, or time in order to unlock your phone. Uh, and then companies like Apple have found themselves playing all sides of the lockdown game. On the one hand, they want to stop independent software publishers from selling you apps for your phone and tablet without giving them their 30% cut. And they also want to lock the video and audiobooks they sell in the iTunes store uh, to uh, Apple hardware, so switching from the Apple cluster of devices has a high switching cost. You can't just throw away your, um, your special iPad video and your special iStore video and your special iStore audiobooks and walk away into a completely different ecosystem. You'll always have to end up with one of their partners because only those people are authorized to play back those files. And there's, there's a, a set of legal and technical restrictions that would stop you from playing them without buying into that ecosystem. But like the BBC, they've all discovered that none of the stuff actually attains its stated goal. All phones end up being unlocked. All content ends up being pirated. All tablets end up being jailbroken. 
But that, that isn't to say that designing devices to attack their owners is without consequences. Indeed, once you start calling this what it is, designing computers to betray their owners' interests, it becomes immediately obvious why this is a bad idea. It doesn't matter if you're a movie pirate. It doesn't matter if you're a radio hacker. Um, what matters is that applying this prior restraint model of regulation to general purpose PCs means that all the devices around you are increasingly running on software that is designed and hardware that is designed with this facility in mind and running on operating systems that are likewise so designed. So, for example, um, the Free Software Foundation this week has raised an alarm about the Nintendo 3DS, which is a little handheld clever little 3D console that does lots of really interesting things. It attempts to connect to, to the internet even if you tell it not to. When it connects to the internet, it attempts to download new firmware even if you tell it not to. It installs that firmware without user intervention. That firmware checks to see if you've run anything that's in contravention of what Nintendo considers appropriate for its devices, specifically whether you've jailbroken it to run unapproved software. If it discovers that you've jailbroken it to, to run unapproved software, it then um, bricks the device. So it, it, it leaves it in an unusable state uh, so that it can't be powered on and, and run any longer. Um, this is your device, but it's not yours anymore. It's, it's designed specifically to betray your interests when your interests diverge from that of the company that manufactured it. Uh, and it even goes further. It comes with a, a legal agreement that asserts ownership of all your personal data, your photos, your writings, and other user-generated content you create with it. Increasingly, we are adding this legal and technical infrastructure to arbitrarily prevent code from running on a computer or to covertly run software on computers, to eavesdrop on all network communication, to block certain websites, and to force websites to remove content from the internet on an ever greater set of nebulously defined pretenses with ever greater penalties for failures to act, for failure to act expeditiously. So um, we have created uh, a whole realm of new regulations around hosting and carrying terrorist communications and decent material, libelous material, um, now material that violates super injunctions, um, and then hosting or carrying illegally leaked documents. Uh, this has been very much in the news, you've, I'm sure you've noticed. And as we've seen, none of this is particularly effective at stopping bad or prohibited stuff from happening, but it does provide an easy set of tools for censors. Uh, in the UK, libel law has been used to pursue science writers who make such outrageous claims as AIDS can't, be cure, AIDS can't be cured with expensive vitamins or chiropractors can't cure cancer by rubbing your back. Uh, the Church of Scientology has made an art of going after its critics with, with copyright claims. Uh, uh, maybe a science, maybe the only science that the Church of Scientology can actually lay claim to. Um, basically, these are rules and systems that magnify the advantage of powerful and unscrupulous people at the expense of powerless and honest people. The U.S. has recently expanded its repertoire of tactics, claiming the right to confiscate .com and .net domains that offend it with little or no due process. Just, this, just last month, this resulted in the seizure of 80,000 domains uh, that were um, erroneously seized and replaced with a, or websites, not domains, they were all under a single domain, but 80,000 websites seized and replaced with a, a banner that said, this was a child porn website and you coming here to see it are, are someone who must have trafficked in child pornography because that's the only reason to visit here. There's only one problem, those 80,000 websites had nothing to do with child pornography. Um, the on the universal network side, the American IP czar, Victoria Espinel, uh, has recommended copyright, copyright wiretaps, so um, it will become lawful to listen in on your conversations covertly if they believe that you are... Um, 
if the, they believe that you're infringing copyright, so expanding the repertoire of activities that would make it lawful to eavesdrop on your network communications, um, as well as a national copyright censor wall for the U.S., something that's also been mooted here, and also a European-wide uh, sort of great firewall of Europe. Um, and all the authorities would need to do to listen in or to stop you from looking at a website is demonstrate a, a mere suspicion that copyright infringement is going on. Now, this isn't going to go away. This, this problem isn't unique to this moment and, and a, a minor historical accident that we'll overcome with the next generation of technology. Indeed, more, the more technology we have, the more magnified this problem becomes. For example, 3D printers um, are, uh, open up a whole new set of actors who will want to regulate general purpose computers uh, and outlaw truly general purpose computing. So 3D printers are, are funny chimeric beasts. The fact that we're, we're calling them printers tells you that we're not really sure what they're for yet. Um, 3D printers are devices that uh, cause 3D objects to appear in their volume uh, when you ask them to based on digital uh, meshes based on digital files. So you feed it a digital file and out comes a 3D object. And they can be everything from the banal to the magnificent and they're, they're coming in a wider and wider variety of, of materials that they print in and resolutions that they print at. Um, using the word print here is, is, as I said, very problematic and weird. I'll show you my, my current favorite 3D printed object. Um, I recently uh, uh, discovered that the cause of my 20 years of back pain was that my hip had too much bone in it. It's called a, an acetabular femoral impingement. And so my femur had a lot of extra bone and I had some MRIs and then they went in with a kind of rotary tool and took out part of my hip. And my wife smuggled out my MRIs and had my, my hip uh, 3D printed in bronze and stainless <laughs> steel. And this is, this is the bit of bone they took out there. Um, so, uh, so 3D printers do lots of interesting and, and wonderful things, and um, the question is who would be upset by that, and the answer is kind of who wouldn't be. For example, in, in Alabama and other uh, southern jurisdictions, sex toys are illegal. Um, so what happens when um, you combine uh, an online repository of 3D objects like Thingiverse, which is a very good online repository of 3D objects, and the capacity to make those files that describe a 3D object into the object itself that may be present in the jurisdiction. All of a sudden, you've got a collision between local norms and laws. You've got a, you've got, uh, a first impulse that says, well, let's just design the printer so that certain meshes are off limits to it. Um, but it's not just people who we might go, well, that sounds, that sounds very uh, uh, backwards and, and odd. There are lots of people who have lots of reasons to want to control the sudden appearance of 3D objects where they weren't before. Um, for example, there are indigenous people who want to prohibit the reproduction of certain sacred symbols. Um, gun regulators who don't want you turning your semi-automatic into a full auto. Or, or even, you know, arguably, we, we, could, we could argue about whether they're right or wrong, but Mattel might object, for example, to interchangeable anatomically correct Barbie torsos uh, being produced into which you could simply slot the legs, arms, and head. Um, for reasons good and bad, there are lots of people who worry about the output of 3D printers, especially as they expand the repertoire of materials and the resolutions at which they output. And right behind 3D printers are bioprinters and, and microscale printers that can produce compounds and, and biological material or take biological material and reconfigure it. Um, and there isn't a bioscientist in the world who doesn't dream of having one of these on her workbench. And once they're cheap and widely available, it'll make that kind of biohacking available to people who are in a much wider range, the, the kind of wide range of imaginations and talents who previously tackled everything from desktop publishing to flash game design, who on the one hand produce some really 
unexpected delights and miracles of, of design and, and of play and, and so on that we never thought were there because there was a very, the, the Venn diagram of everyone who has an idea for a design and everyone who can work the apparatus to make a design was largely disjoint with a only small sliver overlapping. And as those two circles move closer together, you started to get some wonderful things. But as anyone who lived through the first flush of the uh, desktop publishing revolution can tell you, it wasn't all good. Um, and that was before Comic Sans. You can find out more about research and courses in some of the technologies discussed in this seminar by going to www.mct.open.ac.uk.